So in terms of the, the appropriation, we were focused on not taking the medicines out of the Amazon and putting them all over the world, but actually bringing people to the Amazon, creating local economy, creating sustainable cultivation around the plants. Fast forward 20 years. Now the children are interested in again. Now there's intergenerational teaching taking place. Many, many people, now hundreds, thousands of practitioners have actually been able to get their kids into college and get their kids into other kinds of secondary education. I know that there is misappropriation taking place. That's when people don't go through the training and they're leaving out the knowledge itself and they become a glorified bartender, basically serving psychedelics. I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Rick Safris, et c'est le podcast du Gidecolo Holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 111. Ooh, kind of a sacred number there. Very appropriate for my guest today. It's Hamilton Souther. You've heard Hamilton on Aubrey Marcus's podcast, my man, Kyle Kingsbury's podcast. Hamilton is a really interesting guy. We got to know each other when I was introduced to his tours that he gives in Peru. His company is called Blue Morpho, and you can find more information at Blue Morpho Tours. That's B-L-U-E-M-O-R-P-H-O-T-O-U-R-S.com, where you're going to have the experience to sit with Hamilton, who apprenticed for a decade plus in the serving of ayahuasca in ceremonial retreat space. And you chat with Hamilton. You understand why he's been so successful at this. He's very humble. He's very grounded. And even though he doesn't have children, we get into the use of ayahuasca for everything from connecting to the spirit of your baby, which I have experienced personally, not through ayahuasca, but through psilocybin while my wife was pregnant, all the way through releasing birth trauma and generational trauma through a very intentional, consciously held space in sitting with ayahuasca. We get into the weeds here. So much has been written about ayahuasca and other psychedelics. Here's an example here. We need women to rise to the occasion. The ayahuasca experience rebirths, inspires, empowers, and ignites us to do that. The cosmic sister plant spirit grant is just one small way. Women can encourage and support women to take that journey and shine as they were born to do. Now, of course, I'm, I'm quoting that from Zoe Helene. She's the originator of psychedelic feminism. If you want to support her work, it's Z-O-E-H-E-L-E-N-E.com. And that is a quote that I think is lovely, but it was actually a promotional quote for a project that she's working on. But I think that it really captures what it is that I think so many people are finding in the psychedelic space. It's really allowing you to do some deep interpersonal work that is not all that <laughs> easy to do with the multiple distractions we have in our life. So whether you are planning to become a parent, whether you already are a parent, whether you've had some acknowledged some trauma in your past and you want somebody to shake up the snow globe a little bit, I think today's guest Hamilton can be that guide for you. 
in doing some of that deep inner work. So you're going to love, you're going to love, love, love this episode. Of course, we can't do this show without our lovely sponsors. Full Well Fertility makes the best prenatal vitamins and men's virility vitamins on the market. If you're even thoughtful about building your family, now's the time to start taking the best prenatal vitamin on the market. Of course, this is an insurance policy to the very, very healthy lifestyle elements that I always talk about. But if you want to take advantage of Full Well's offer, they can be found at fullwellfertility.com. And then you're going to use code BELOVED10 to get 10% off. I don't recommend any other vitamin on the market. It's just as simple as that. So go there and check out what they've got. They also have Nourish Nerves tonic for your nervous system, as well as a, an incredible fish oil. This episode is also brought to you by BirthFit. So BirthFit is really, really cool. If you haven't gone to their website, go to birthfit.com, you're going to see that the very, very important niche of pregnancy and postpartum specific exercise and lifestyle programming is available. You're not going to get it at your everyday CrossFit gym. You're not going to get it at your Bally Total Fitness. I don't even know if Bally is still a thing. But my point being that everybody out there who knows how to coach people, even coach women, aren't really trained specifically in how to do this around different phases of your menstrual cycle, different phases of the year seasonally, and especially not in pregnancy and postpartum. So go check out what BirthFit does. I really, really believe in what these guys do. Lindsay Cantu, the owner of BirthFit, has become a friend of mine. I've taught for her group. She's taught for my group. You can look forward to an episode with her coming out very soon. But in the meantime, why don't you join their B community? That is a community built by women for women. We'll share insights. You can get all of your questions answered, answer other people's questions, make connections with other women who are thoughtful about treating their body like a temple. Heck, they're probably already using Full Well. They're already using some of the other sponsors' products on the show. Birth fits the way to get together with them and to start generating some more creative ways to keep yourself healthy in pregnancy. Go to birthfit.com, use code BELOVED, and you'll get one month free in their beautiful B community. Immune Intel HCC, at this point, I don't think that they need much of an introduction, but they make this product, HCC, active hexose correlated compound. It's a cultured, patented functional food made from the mycelia of shiitake mushrooms, and it's been clinically demonstrated to help in a variety of things. All the autoimmune conditions, Lyme disease, medication-resistant epilepsy. Mimi, one of the owners, just told me that one of those health practitioners are actually seeing a benefit from herpes. Frequent outbreaks are becoming less frequent. They're becoming less intense. And most importantly, for my audience, there are clinical studies demonstrating that it helps to clear persistent HPV. It does this by boosting up the number of immune cells, namely NK cells and T cells, by about 300%, improves the communication between those cells, it decreases the stress response you have to this chronic low state of inflammation. It's a perfect match. It's perfectly in alignment with what I love to provide people. You can save yourself painful biopsies, save yourself a shorter lifespan with cervical cancer. You can save yourself leap procedures, all of this stuff. Go to themedicine.com slash products. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com slash products. Enter code BELOVED10 and bam, 10% off your order. I love these guys. I love Mimi and Chase and what they've put together over at The Medicine. They also have an incredible podcast, by the way, The Medicine Podcast, and I've been a guest there. All right, well, we've got two more. Bioptimizers, they have quickly risen to the top of the supplement world for a reason. It's because all of their products are clean, all of them work super well, and they don't have a bunch of junk added. My four favorite products are Magnesium Breakthrough, Masszymes, HCL Breakthrough, and P3OM. I'm going to talk a little bit about HCL Breakthrough right now. When you get heartburn, 
it tells you there's acid going up in your esophagus. The problem is that your doctor is going to prescribe you an antacid or an acid blocker in order to prevent that acid from accumulating because they perceive it as there's too much acid. The problem is for most people, there's not enough acid. You actually have to add acid to your food. You can try apple cider vinegar and those types of things, but HCL breakthrough, two capsules before those big meals that you know you're going to get heartburn from, try adding a little bit of acid to your food and see what happens. If you want to try this out and report back, go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN. I've gotten so many of my clients off of PPIs and H2 blockers, otherwise known as antacids. It's actually been through adding acid, believe it or not. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but you got to try this stuff out. P3OM assimes, their magnesium breakthrough, incredible for sleep, especially if you're pregnant, get your magnesium levels up. Everything can be found at bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or enter code beloved and you'll save 10% on your purchase. Last but not least, another company that needs a little introduction, Organifi. They continue to make some of the best products on the market. I continue to really go back to their gold latte, which I just find to be so delicious. So this gold latte has a variety of delicious ingredients, but more importantly, it comes in a variety of different flavors, including chocolate around this time of year. They had pumpkin spice back in the fall. All of their ingredients are USDA organic. They're all gluten-free. They're all glyphosate-free. They're non-GMO. This is as good as you can expect to find in the nutrition space. So it's called gold latte because it's rich in turmeric, super rich in antioxidants, cacao, lemon balm, reishi mushrooms, turkey tail mushrooms, both functional mushrooms that help to support your adaptogenic. So they help to support your balance, your energy levels. They're also longevity promoting. So they uh, promote recovery and repair of your body when you're getting restful sleep. It's got ginger, coconut milk, Ceylon cinnamon, some mag chloride, some black pepper, acacia, everything you need to get a better rest at night, get your body the adequate nutrition it needs to restore itself. And you can go to Organifi.com slash Beloved or enter code Beloved. You'll save 20% on this product. Try their gold, try their green, try their red, try their cacao harmony. Everything that this company makes is gold, truly. (laughs) Not least of which is their gold latte. That's right. Okay. (laughs) I've spoken enough. My guest here, Hamilton Souther, is a gem. I will be sitting with him in medicine ceremony this year at some point when uh, my crazy schedule permits. But enjoy this episode. If you like anything you've heard, leave a five-star review, share with your friends. Just can't thank you enough for being here. Thanks for making this possible, everybody. All right, without further ado, Hamilton Souther. Hamilton Souther, welcome to the Holistic Abiduane podcast. You're a pretty unusual guest for me to have here because you're working within the plant medicine world and the mushroom world. Because I always have to tell people mushrooms are not plants, so we have to distinguish. But the psychedelic space, the transformation, the integration of these experiences, I think is super relevant to what we go through as parents, as you know, the birthing women that I serve, all of the midwives who are out there doing this hard work. So we're going to be getting deep into that. So welcome. Thank you for giving me some of your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me here, Nathan. It's a real pleasure and you know, heard a lot about your podcast and just really excited to be here. So thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, thank you. We've got a bunch of mutual friends. I know Kyle Kingsbury is a dear friend of mine. If you guys haven't checked out Kyle's show, it's the Kyle Kingsbury podcast. I think you've been a guest how many times on his show? I actually haven't been on his show You yet. haven't? 
No, we've just been in person. I've been on Aubrey's show a bunch of times. Gotcha. Yeah. So no, Kyle and I just met in person for the first time this last month and just hit it off. It was an awesome meeting. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. Incredible. Oh, yeah, gosh. yeah. No, we just sat for the first time together and it was just truly amazing. So I look forward to potentially being on his podcast. I'm going to talk with him this weekend. And I'll give him a little nudge. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That'd be nice. Amazing. We'll be seeing him next week. We're recording this right now, the third or fourth of November and 2022. And I bet you're going to be on his show before this episode even airs. So we're just going to connect all the dots here. Hamilton, I don't want you to have to repeat yourself because you've been on a lot of podcasts. You've immersed yourself in the work of sitting with people through the ceremony. We'll just use the word plant medicines mm -hmm. for years now. Tell everybody a little bit about your background. Like what expertise or wisdom are you bringing into this conversation? Sure. You know, in early 2000s, I got introduced to plant medicines of various forms, and I ultimately ended up in a traditional plant medicine experience in the Amazon. And I literally crossed over the boundary from being a participant to being trained in a traditional apprenticeship with traditional elders. And since 2002, I started Blue Morpho, which was really the first plant medicine center for Amazonian plant medicines, psychoactive and non-psychoactive. A lot of people just focus on the psychoactive right. side, but we were actually focused on the pharmacopoeia that represented the Amazon and the ancestral knowledge of hundreds of medicinal plants. And so we were the first center to open up that kind of medicine, you know, as a form of herbal medicine and energy medicine to people from all over the world. And then I was influential in starting the neo-shamanic revolution that's become the psychedelic renaissance and have been really a proponent for the safe and professional use of these kinds of plant medicines because they are so potent. They're very strong and they're legitimate medicines in their own right. Yeah. So I've been a proponent of that for the last 20 years, trying to guide people, especially when they're not finding the solutions in Western medicine that they're looking for, that this maybe is an avenue that could provide those solutions. There is so much we could talk about right there, especially because as I'm sure you've learned, I am not so much an advocate for using Western medicine for everything under the sun. I think it has its purposes. If I had my leg chopped off with a saw, you know, a, I don't know, a chainsaw or something, I'd go to the emergency room. But there's quite a bit that the Western medical model doesn't seem to be able to to, you know, the needs that haven't been met by the Western medical system, which is why I'm guessing so many people are now dabbling in the psychedelic world because it's providing such an opportunity to open up and to heal from traumas, etc. Before we go down that path, I do want to ask you real quickly, we're both white men. Is there any sort of cultural appropriation of these medicines, these ceremonies? Have you seen that? And how do you navigate that? Because I'm sure that's been a part of your story. Sure. You know, when I went down to the Amazon, I think what's important to understand is that the practices and the traditional indigenous use of them was dying. And I don't think people talk about that. They were no longer interesting to the locals. They had very little purpose for them. There was an encroachment of Western medicine already into their societies. They had been shown the efficacy of certain kinds of big pharma based medicines. The children didn't want to go through the equivalent of training, which, you know, apprenticeship is like training in Western medicine. It's somewhere between an eight to 15 year process to ultimately graduate and be considered a viable practitioner of these kinds of medicines. You're not just a psychedelic sitter. You actually learn hundreds of medicines and how to be able to diagnose and treat an unbelievable number of illnesses that wow. are important to the tribal people. And so there just wasn't as much interest in that. There was already the Western, you know, coin based economy. So, you know, getting paid money for your day's labor, et cetera, was already there. And so when I came in, I came in really as an anthropologist and I was interested in participating in the experiences and not really appropriating the medicines. But if we discovered real medicines that could provide real benefit, 
opening that up to really rekindle interest in it. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So we made our first scientific discoveries really in linguistics, not in the medicines themselves. The locals that I was engaged with and the indigenous people I was living with did not have a word for trauma, depression, anxiety, or PTSD in their language. And when I realized that, and that that was like a true anthropological discovery in linguistics, that there had to be a reason because the life can be very difficult there. And that should create trauma and depression and anxiety and different kinds of problems. And so what I realized was that there was an immediate plant medicine intervention on the backside of severe illness or severe trauma. And that's what got me really interested in the plant medicine space and looking at that. So in terms of the appropriation, I think it's really more emerging and a sharing of ideals and needs. And we were focused on not taking the medicines out of the Amazon and putting them all over the world, but actually bringing people to the Amazon, creating local economy, creating sustainable cultivation around the plants and the use of them, really educating people on the value of the plants and functioning as a bridge for the locals to be able to share this ancestral knowledge that was more than 5,000 years old. Now with the rest of the globalizing world at that time, we didn't see it in any way as an exploitative thing. We saw it as a helping supportive thing to their economies and supporting each other in really the perpetuation of the use of those medicines. To close on that, 20 years later, so fast forward 20 years, now the children are interested in again. Now there's intergenerational teaching taking place. So grandkids are learning from grandparents. They're passing the knowledge on. It has been completely reinvigorated. There is a purpose to their own societies associated with it. And there's a means in the quote unquote Peruvian or Ecuadorian or Colombian economies to actually subsist and survive and even now thrive that wasn't there before. And it didn't make any sense to me that these people were now living with Western money, yet they were so poor that they were being exploited in every way. Many, many people, now hundreds, thousands of practitioners have actually been able to get their kids into college and get their kids into other kinds of secondary education beyond that, that never would have been a possibility before. So I really do think that we've supported it. I know that there is misappropriation taking place. For me, that's when people don't go through the training. Hmm. They don't go through the eight years, nine years, 10 years of training necessary to be a sacred carrier and administer of these medicines. And they're leaving out what was most important about the practices, which was the knowledge itself. And they become a glorified bartender, basically serving psychedelics. That to me is the misappropriation of you know the medicines. And they've kind of separated the education model out of it. I think we have to get back into the education model, get back to those communities and let these medicines thrive on a global level. Whew. I couldn't have said any of that better myself. And I've got a couple things, you know, I want to steer this down the path of how are these medicines being used for treatment of specific conditions or diseases, as we say. But I also want to bring up, you know, the famous quote from Krishnamurti, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. So when we consider the role of these medicines through many indigenous peoples across the world, but, you know, of course, in the Americas, from tobacco to ayahuasca to peyote to wachuma, there are so many medicines available. And I'm only talking about the psychotropic, as you mentioned. Correct. There are so many medicines that have provided a link for people to their environment. They've harmonized with their environment. This was actually a part of who they were. And now because there isn't an economic incentive, or at least there wasn't until you started doing this in a lot of people, these traditions and really their connection to Mother Earth, you know, call it what you will, Gaia, 
it has started to dissolve. And that actually is a problem. So I don't think this is like a white man's burden. We need to save it. And I certainly don't think that's what you're saying. But I do think that there's a distinction between what you are doing. And and by the way, I was just in a traditional Lakota sweat lodge on a sacred hunt with Mansell Denton. And the guy who led that, he said he had to practice an apprentice for 10 plus years before he was allowed to pour. And that is an important path to walk before you can really embody what a Lakota sweat lodge requires as a guide. And I think that what you're describing here is, hey guys, this is not like you take a weekend retreat and then you start sitting and offering combo. Like there is an initiation to this practice itself. And even I, when I provide medicines of various types, I won't be explicit because I'm a doctor. I have to, you know, be very, very clear of my intentions and the boundaries and what my expectations are and the expectations that I hope that my clients will gain because there's still so much to be known. The, the humility, I think, is critical here. And I'm so glad that you bring that into your practice. Yeah. I mean, you know, I got to the Amazon in 2002 when people didn't even know the term ayahuasca. Mm. And at best, it was being offered as an add-on to a kind of a jungle trekking tourism thing. Mm. So a local would come with his bottle of ayahuasca and he would share it with some tourists and they would have a ceremony and they would have an experience and many people had had profound experiences and many people didn't. And I went deep into the forest. I was looking for something more meaningful than that. And I ended up in a very remote part of the forest in my first ayahuasca ceremony and being told in the visions that I would actually train there. The person I ended up training with happened to live 300 yards, 400 yards downriver, who was an 85-year-old elder who had been practicing for over 50 years. And what I was first sort of introduced to was this understanding that people come to these healers with legitimate illnesses, and they're looking for intervention, treatment, and resolution. And most of those are not psychological or psychosomatic illnesses, but really physical illnesses. Mm. And they know the forest through the visionary realms, so through these ayahuasca ceremonies, learning the forest and its absolute energy and absolute totality that the plants represent, they've learned to use a number of different plants in the hundreds to treat all of these different kinds of illnesses. And I was really interested. I wanted to learn. And they finally accepted me after a year and three quarters of living there, just, just living there, just learning how to subsist, learning how to live off the land. And I had participated until the point that they accepted me in about 30 ceremonies. And they had been great in many different ways. They had allowed me to be a participant. But the night they actually accepted me was this incredible encounter. I was given a cup of ayahuasca. I was taken into vision. And the vision was all black. It wasn't all colorful and everything people talk about. It was literally black. It felt like the life was being compressed out of me. At the time that I blacked out in this kind of tremendous agony, I don't know how long I was out. When I came to... I was actually in the visionary space with the elder and his number one student at the time, who was also an elder and his, you know, right. And they were with me. We had merged into this common visionary field. And through that field, they started to train and teach me. And that was something that I had never even heard of before. And so that really started the education process. And then we would be in ceremonies, literally anywhere from 15 to 20 ceremonies a month for the next four years. And it was in that time, a direct teaching about their medicinal practices, about their energy practices, about their knowledge and about their use of the plants, their relationship with Gaia, Mother Earth, their relationship with the total life force that they called the Tukwatana of the forest itself. 
And it was literally almost just like when I went through the university, a step-by-step series of apprenticeship and training to the point that they said, okay, you now can practice on your own. And that's the only time then you're actually even allowed to touch the bottle of ayahuasca. Wow. So yeah, you're not allowed to touch it. You're not allowed to touch it for years. This is a sacrament. This is not Correct. to be disrespected. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. No one touches their ayahuasca. That would be like walking into someone's pharmacy and just grabbing pills. Like yeah. you don't do that. Sure. And it would be considered even beyond that. It wouldn't even just be a theft. It would be a transgression of something truly sacred to them. Mm. And so I was, you know, indoctrinated into that, brought into that, and then trained. And that's, you know, created the foundation of our work and then also our messaging. And I just think that that's very different to what we've seen in the Western psychedelic culture around this, where you hear of people that are participating in ceremonies and becoming carriers of these medicines in a very short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you made a perfect, I think, example, the allegory of the training of a doctor in Western medicine. That's what I was born of. It's been 14 years and I still Mm. bring humility and like, I just don't know. When we say, hey, I got my degree and my diploma's on the way. I've got like 10 of them. I don't know where they are. They're somewhere in my house. But even after all of that, it's the practice of medicine. You never have all the answers. So bringing that humility to, hey, yes, it was a 10-year path or 14-year path for me before I can even call myself and feel comfortable saying, I'm here to do this, provide this service. I think that's lacking in our world. You know, I think we all want to like go and get that weekend workshop under our belts and then we can start offering transformative medicine, not realizing that, hey, yes, most of the time it goes well, birth, for example, but you also need to be willing to accept that sometimes things aren't going to go well. Has your experience provided you the insights and perhaps the clarity as to what to do, how to help guide them back on path, et cetera? So as a person who offers medicines, you mentioned ayahuasca, so we'll just use ayahuasca as an example, but maybe we can also talk about some of the non-psychotropic medications. In sitting with ayahuasca, what is the role of a guide? And yeah, how do you describe that to people? What is your job there? It's actually really sophisticated. First of all, you're the person who collects the plants and then creates the teas or the brews that people are ingesting. And so first you have to know how to do that in a safe way. And your next role is to dose and to know the amount that someone's supposed to need. And it's different for every single person. Mm. And so just learning how to dose takes years because it's not a dose for everybody. It's not done by body weight. You literally have to be able to look at the person and know. (laughs) And if you don't know, then you're not supposed to be the one dosing. It's that simple. Then you're the sacred container that gets created in the ceremonies themselves. It's sort of like the energetic version of an operating room or the place of healing that people are going to come to. That needs to be safe energetically from, you know, all different kinds of energies that are there because you open up into a very sensitive state. The way I try to describe it is, you know, science has said that to be in this state of consciousness we're in now, we filter out trillions of stimuli a second so that we can sort of fix the image of what's going on in this great field of waves and energy that's all around us. When you go into these visionary ceremonies, you actually want to turn on your awareness of all of those trillions of stimuli. And so you become very, very sensitive to energy, to the field that's there and the energies that are within it. So Mm. they're holding that container together and making sure that it's safe for everybody. So much in terms of the people that are there and also any kind of outside energy that could be also part of that. Then you have sort of the onset. And it's really important that you guide the onset of the plants. They're very powerful chemically. They're also very powerful energetically. But chemically, you're creating this drastic and dramatic change in a very short period of time. And so you're there to be able to help 
guide that and you do it through sound and rhythms. Mm. So you guide through sound and rhythms, really through the inducing of a trance state to make it easier for somebody to go through that onset period. Once you go through the onset period, then you're actually very hands-on. We use different techniques to be able to guide the totality of the experience. Most of them are through sound and some are through pure intention themselves. The pure intention part is harder to relate to if you haven't had the experiences because you're like, well, where's the interaction? Mm. But you know, you have you learn to project your energy through that space. And I think the best way to describe it is that after a session or after a ceremony, the next day people will say, Oh, you got up from your chair and you were standing over me, and we never left our chair. And then the other person said, No, you came over to me. And the other person says, no, no, you came over to me. It was during these chants or during these ecros that you actually did that. So those are skills that you learn how to be able to project yourself through the body and to be able to intervene into someone's visionary experience. And when you're doing that, you're actually invoking and channeling different kinds of healing-based energies into the person. So when someone has a certain kind of illness, you can actually see it manifest in the body in the visionary field, you can see it coursing through the body and the body regenerating it and recreating it. Mm-hmm. As a practitioner, it's your job to actually disrupt that, like a pattern disrupt, and really recode that in the body itself. You see it change and you see it transform energetically. You see it get released out of the body. When things get released, it's very important as well that you know how to guide and direct those energies away from others. Because you'll hear stories of things coming out of one person going into another. That's not responsible practice. Mm. That's someone who doesn't know what they're doing. So those energies leave. And then ultimately, you guide and direct what we call medicine energies or healing energies into the body. And they take the place of the illness. So it's sort of a removal of the illness and a replacing of these other kinds of energies that now literally create health over time in the person. Or they create healing over time in the person. And all of those are your roles simultaneously throughout the session or the ceremony. Yeah, man. I'm so glad that we've met. I've got like a million questions. In fact, I want your phone number after this because I've got (laughs) other questions for you. And I think I'm going to join you down in South America at some point. Hamilton, I think one thing that our society is desperately craving is twofold. I think one is authenticity. The other is, I think we're craving, we're lamenting the lack of rites of passage. And I think that birth Mm. is an important rite of passage. I think there's a transformation of spirit that happens in birth and in death. And we've over-medicalized, over-pathologized these experiences. So what happens, or the way that I frame it, and maybe you can help me condition this language a little bit, is that anything that's an immense stress on the body requires integration of that stress. Otherwise, it gets locked up as trauma. And I think a vast majority of what people are experiencing and perhaps the sense of grief, something there about even their typical birth, they had a baby, they're healthy, but something doesn't feel right. There was this lack of ceremony around this incredible transformation of spirit for the baby, for the mom, for her partner, for the whole unit as a whole. Can you talk a little bit about the integration of these experiences, any sacred you know, transformative experience, which I would certainly say an experience with ayahuasca, any of these other medicines that we've been talking about, but also birth and perhaps even at the end of life at death, we intervene, we create more stress on it than needs to happen. And then of course, the biggest issue is we don't have a way of ritualizing these things anymore. There's no ceremony or integration. Can you speak a little bit about the role of integration after any transformative experience? Yeah. I mean, I think first the issue is 
like you said, it's a lack of ceremony or a lack of ritual. And I just think of that as a lack of celebration. It's not celebration in the sense of like a party, but celebration in the sense of this massive change is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And it is such a positive change. We want to prepare for it. We want to be fully conscious as we go through it. If that's the birthing process and then also the healing process after it. And you think about the physical transformation that the mom goes through, which is, you know, incredible from conception through the pregnancy yeah. and then the birth itself. Yeah. And then the healing that has to take place just physically associated with that. So there's this, an idea of wanting to be fully engrossed and fully part of that experience, fully conscious of it and celebrating it every single step of the way. And then after it, is this idea, like you mentioned, integration. And integration for me is the idea that I'm going to continue to draw from this experience, learn from this experience, and let it form a new reality for me, little by little, by little by little. People think like integration is a weekend and done. And I'm saying, no, I'm still integrating my first ceremony 22 years ago. I want to draw from these experiences everything I possibly can. They trigger not just a change in my life, but they trigger a new direction that my life has taken. And becoming a parent is a new direction. It's a change of archetype. You can't say you were mother or father before you have a child. I've talked to many, many parents and they said that, you know, it's like a change in their operating system. That is a shift in consciousness. Something real has taken place. And so I don't think we're giving enough importance to mapping that change within ourselves, getting into it, really embracing it, learning from it, extracting maximum value from it, fully embodying it, and doing that with our partners and our closest loved ones so that we all go through it together. Like Mm. I haven't heard of anybody talking about the whole family supporting the sacred masculine or the whole family supporting the sacred feminine coming together and really, really supporting the growth of that. And I think of it like the growth of nature, like the bee pollinates the flower and then the little apple or pear starts to grow. That grows and grows and grows and grows into this great fruit. That's the harvest. That's what we need to be doing together. And that to me is integration. So when we have these big events that some people are describing as traumatic, but they don't have to be, that's a key element. Things do not have to be traumatic. We're treating them in a way that makes it traumatic. Yeah. But I think of it as like the snow globe, like our consciousness is, it k- takes on a fixation in reality. It becomes normalized. We get used to it. And this big experience happens and it's like shaking up the snow globe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we want to guide that process of letting that snow globe come down into a new reality. And when it does, in it, you're now father or mother. In it, you now have a new sacred role, which is the bringer of life and the now the guide for this life. That's a sacred role in its own right. Then we have, you know, the family and community around us that in the tribal society celebrates this graduation that you've gone through. And this it's such an important role that you've now taken on. And so I think if we add those ideas into our life, integration is actually really easy. And it's something that we can share and sort of harvest from, you know, all the time. God, yeah. I'm pausing intentionally because what you're saying, it's going to be reciprocated and people hearing this because you're speaking the language of how our communities, I think, could operate around birth. Mm. And like you said, this experience of birth doesn't have to be traumatic. That ayahuasca ceremony doesn't have to be traumatic. But if it's lacking this integration part afterwards, what I always tell people is if you take a bunch of mushrooms, you're going to have a heck of a trip. 
But the trip is actually the easy part. It's the integration mm. afterwards that makes or break what this means sure. to you and how you show up in the world. And I think the same goes whether you're on medicine or not. Going through birth as a new father, etc. This is an area where our community being so siloed off, we don't have any respect for what this is. This is not a medical procedure. This is a shaking of the snow globe and how we allow yeah. that snow to restitute itself is going to be reflected in how you show up as a parent. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm wondering, do you have any direct experiences with women or their partners who have been pregnant? They've gone into ceremony and they've come out with some integration afterwards that was really insightful to you. And if not, I have a brief story I can share, but I'm curious what your experience has been. Yeah, you know, one of the beautiful things about Blue Morpho and creating community around these medicines was that we got to meet people and go on their journey with them. And we actually had a number of couples that formed through our retreats themselves, but we also had a number of people coming down that had fertility issues. They were looking at how to be able to get past that, how to be able to get pregnant. And so we got to go on that journey with them. Wow. We helped them through ceremony actually change their physiology so that they could become pregnant. They immediately, within literally 30 days to 60 days post-retreat, got pregnant. Then we walked with them through the entire process of being pregnant, going through the birth, and then also the ceremonial experience beyond that of how to now integrate into you know the new role that they were wow. having. Yeah. And we presented it as that idea of celebration the whole time. And, you know, that was part of the ways that I learned about this idea of the sacred transformation and role, which is actually really hard for us to go through mm. and how we could do that together. One of the ways that we actually prepared people for this was we would take them into ceremony and in this altered state of consciousness, we would actually go back in time to their own embryonic state. So we would go for the formation of their zygote. We would actually take them pre-zygote, oh so we would bring them together in consciousness as sperm and egg, and we would take them through the sexual expression of that of their parents into the zygote itself so that they're fully conscious now of becoming zygote, and then walking through the cellular division until they're all heart, and the little embryo is so much heart, it doesn't even have a brain or a mind yet, wow. and what it is to be that heart and the connection with source and divine energy in that heart state and what it is to ultimately, you know, grow limb and become that of mind and brain, and then walk them all the way through their own birth so that they could experientially know what their own child was going to go through. And that then they could welcome their child saying, you know, I've gone through this experience. I know what you're going to go through. I'm now conscious of it. I wasn't conscious of it the first time around. Now I'm conscious of it. I'm going to be the sacred guide for you through this experience. I'm going to guide your consciousness through it. And we're going to welcome you into this world to be an active part of our new family. And it was, you know, it's miraculous. It's There's no words. There really aren't. Although you do lend quite a bit of language to something that I see as increasingly ineffable. In many regards, when women tell their birth stories, there is an ineffability to it. You know, it was ecstatic, mm. it was painful, it was traumatic. I mean, there's all these adjectives, but to really understand from a man's standpoint what it means to give birth is really hard. However, I mean, it's impossible. There is no way for me to know. So I will offer that up to everybody who's skeptical of me speaking the way I do about childbirth and whatnot. However, I will say from my own experience and through many men I've met along the way, they have gone through a rebirthing experience. The pain, the ecstasy, the messiness, they've gone through that entire experience in ceremony, which tells us that there's far more to this than just what meets the eye and the measurable as we like to approach it from the lens of Western medicine. That is really fascinating, Hamilton. 
you know, fertility is, of course, right now on the decline. It has been for several decades from both the male and the female, you know, side of things. And when I start working with clients, you know, the physical is the easy part for me. We can do the labs and the imaging, and maybe you need surgery to remove this big thing off your ovary, or we need to remove a septum inside the uterus or whatever, polyps, you name it. There's all these things that the Western medicine system, again, does well. But what we end up turning to is, oh, everything seems to be working well. You're still not getting pregnant let's jack you up full of synthetic hormones and let's force your body to get pregnant versus an alternative, which is my approach and which clearly if we were working together, which I'd love to, is let's invite the spirit of this baby in. And part of that is we need to wrestle with the undigested morsels of your own birth, perhaps even your mother's birth. We need to consider this as not a linear thing, but all of that collective trauma and wisdom intertwining those and calling in the spirit of this baby, making sure that you are firmly on the ground, but your antenna is connected up here and realizing that you're more than just a meat suit walking around waiting to get pregnant. Like that doesn't always meet all of the needs. So on the mental, emotional, spiritual level, that's where some of these medicines, getting the ego, getting the eye out of the way and perhaps working on your connection to something greater than yourself, that might be the invitation. That might be why you know, your medicines, these ceremonies actually help to call in the spirit of the baby. Have you, as the, I don't even say guide, because you're not really guiding, right? You're more facilitating and holding space. Mm-hmm. Have you yeah, had any- facilitator. Ex- okay, great. So that's the language. Have you had any direct experience with the spirits of babies? Like, have you encountered that in your work? Oh, for sure. I mean- Seems like a dumb question, I realize, because well, I knew your it's answer. Not. It's, it's not People a dumb question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a dumb question. What people don't understand is that, you know, the Western way of learning about consciousness is so isolated. Yeah. And so then we live in this like isolated, individualized bubble. Yeah. And then we're using archetype and category as a way to try to understand similarities between us instead of these universal similarities Mm. that we all experience that just fundamentally part of nature. Yeah. And so when you go through these kinds of ceremonies that we're talking about, In the archetypal world, the Imago Dei is really, I think, lends itself to this. But go on. Yeah. So, you know, first, I mean, in my work, what I do with people every retreat is I simply say, look, everyone before us is our ancestry. It's not just where the branch we were on the family tree. It's everybody that was before us. So we need to go through, you know, what like this unbroken chain of experience of birth to death to birth to death, generation to generation to generation that unfolds folded to get to us. And I think of it and present it as a miracle. This is a miracle. And, you know, some sort of proofs for that, like no two bodies are the same, that no two men are the same. The body is unique to you. The matter that makes up your body is ever changing yet only ever the matter that's connected to you at that given period of time. You know, the breath is never repeated. We take this breath and then it's the next breath. You never can go back and repeat that breath again, et cetera. And so I see this tremendous miracle. We all share heartbeat. We all share thought, but not the same thoughts. Mm. We all share circulation, but not the same experiences. We all have blood, but it's everyone's different blood. Like there are these miracles that make up life itself. And part of that miracle is how life just fundamentally works. And the conception to the embryonic experience and the embryonic experience to the creation of a new being, that new being now having a body. And I personally think that the meat suit concept is aired. It's diminishing the miraculous value and complexity that you represent. We yeah. are, I call it technology. Yeah. I call it, you know, material technology. We are this material technology 
It's not just health. It's how our technology is working and how we can foster through our choices and decisions a greater functioning of that technology. And then how that is the home of our consciousness while we're alive as a human. And I think that that's just fundamentally miraculous. So by taking us through these experiences, seeing the children that are coming into the world in vision, you can see them. You can see literally in vision all the babies that are embryonic right now in the world. You can see all the humans right now in the world. We can tap in to what Earth is actually creating through us and the next evolution and the next generations. And I think that that's unbelievably important because we have a responsibility as humanity to provide a better world for the unborn children that are coming into this world. Yeah. And those yeah. are our choices and decisions. And if we collectively take on that responsibility together and say, you know, the next generation is going to get a better world. They're going to inherit a better world than the one we got. We're going to start to move humanity in a direction of real advancement and growth and development. And that's going to affect our medicine. It's going to affect our practices. It'll affect our culture. It'll affect our soul, who we are as spirit in this incredible, miraculous and mysterious existence. And it's not too big if we all do it collectively, individually, in little bits, right? All I have to do is take the time and effort and energy to be better to every child that I meet. It's so easy to be nice to a child. Yeah. All I have to do is be nice to that baby and I did it. Yeah. It's that simple. All I yeah. have to do is share love with that child. Today, I got to see my nephews and one of them is two years old and all I did was shine love on him mm. and that was doing it. It's so easy. Yeah. And then we can collectively guide you know, the children, and we can turn this, like I said, into celebration instead of trauma, and we can turn it into an evolution, a growth for us, instead of something that we're reacting to. Amazing. Hamilton, let's take a very, very brief break, and I'll be right back. When my wife and I got pregnant with our first Penelope Luce, we didn't get pregnant right away. It took us several months dialing in lifestyle, dialing in sleep, um, tracking fertility awareness like cervical mucus, etc. And then suddenly when we had the figures right, bam, she revealed it to me and I was so ecstatic. It was exaltation. What a burden off my shoulders. We got pregnant. And it was that moment where I really became dedicated to trying to help couples achieve that same experience of exaltation. The problem was that my training as an OBGYN left me with synthetic hormones, a lot of imaging and other procedures without really the toolkit to look upstream for the reasons for which these fertility challenges are presenting in the first place. So from my time in residency, I've explored a lot of other modalities and I've come up with a really, really clever strategy, which starts with a bunch of functional medicine testing, liver detox, working with the second chakra, working in through the yin as opposed to this excess yang that we've all been incentivized to utilize. I've read a number of books and done quite a bit of studying in other areas. And what it has led me to is this special offering that is exclusive to Beloved Holistics. And it's a truly holistic approach to fertility. It's my Patience, Reverence, and Presence Fertility Program. That's PRP. And it starts exactly as I described. But you don't just meet with me. You meet with a breath worker. You meet with an NLP embodiment coach, you meet with a metaphysical counselor and check practitioner, you meet with a functional nutritionist and licensed acupuncturist, you meet with a Chinese medicine and German new medicine practitioner, 
You're going to meet with a psychic medium. You're going to go through art therapy, qigong, tai chi. You're going to learn some foundational movement patterns. You're going to become more flexible. You're going to become stronger. You're going to become detoxified. You're going to become well-nourished. We're going to go through diet, movement, sleep, breath, mindset, hydration. We're going to dial all of that in. And with the purchase of your PRP program, not only do you get all these books and supplements and vitamins and the detox and the Dutch testing and all of this, a meeting with other practitioners, you also get access to my new natural fertility course. It's an online self-guided course at the Czech Institute. And you're going to get a vaginal steaming consultation with vaginal steaming herbs. This is really, really the whole package that will help you either conceive naturally, or if you do end up going the route of IVF, we're going to get you as healthy as possible so that that twelve dollars to $15,000 investment is worthwhile and you get a baby out of the deal. Otherwise, you may find yourself going back for a second or a third round, or if you do get pregnant with IVF, we know that that's an independent risk factor for a lot of pregnancy complications unless you dial in your health and we look upstream to figure out what was the cause of these fertility challenges in the first place. So if you want to find out more information about the PRP Fertility Program at Beloved Holistics, go to belovedholistics.com slash PRP. You'll find a wealth of information there. If you have any doubts or need more information, need answers for your questions, you can always book a free discovery call also on the website. All right, let's get back to this incredible conversation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. I have to say, I haven't been this jazzed halfway through an an interview in a long time because you're touching on all of these intangible things that are very real to people like me and you and a lot of our circles who've sort of seen behind the veil. Once you see the man behind the curtain, you really can't unsee it. And it's hard to put language to this, but I think you actually do quite a good job. And it clearly reflects your wisdom and your experience in sitting with these things. I want to now venture into the space whereby... In the United States, we've been at war, really across the world. We've been at war with nature. I mean, this is since biblical times. We had this shift whereby human beings thought that they were separate from nature and that nature, and I'm using nature loosely, but the trees, the flowers, the bees, the the lawns, everything is really here for our consumption. And the Potawatomi language, this is something I learned from Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, the Potawatomi language identifies the tree as the beingness of a tree. In other words, it's a subject looking at another subject, another being, as opposed to an object. And an object can be objectified and utilized for my benefit. But what I learned from midwives who have worked in birth down in South America, specifically in the Amazon River Basin, helping midwives and babies come into the world, they learned that ayahuasca was not a means of breaking free. Ayahuasca was actually a part of connecting to the environment, as I mentioned before. And so they would be taking ayahuasca before, during, and after pregnancy. And even the baby was getting finger dips put into their mouth because it was going to keep them connected deeply to the Amazon. And in fact, and I'm sure that you can talk to this, but when you're selecting plants, what I've heard, I've never actually gone this far with ayahuasca, but it's not so much a matter of what is the botanical classification. It's more that the plant is what taught them what the use was for. It wasn't that they went into some lab and started experimenting. So by not be connecting their babies in the uterus and immediately afterwards with the Amazon, they're actually disconnecting them from a great source of wisdom. So they, of course, and I'm using they because I don't even remember specifically the tribe that this midwife works with, 
but they saw the jungle as not just helpful, but it was actually a part of them. And without the Amazon river basin in their immediate surroundings, they would perish. There was no way around it, which is obviously in contrast to what I described in our war against nature, whether it's viruses, you know, antimicrobials used to treat everything under the sun, this anti-anti-anti thing where we silo ourselves off, stay out of nature because there's dangerous things out there. The, you know, Shipibo and other peoples in South America they embrace it because without it, they could not be who they are. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm going to just open that up and see where you want to go with it because I'm sure you have a lot to say. <laughs> uh, that's vast and I appreciate that. That's a beautiful setting just of the table. Just a softball question here for you, Hamilton. It's I got awesome. a softy to you once Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important on the Western side of it to understand what is a matrix of ideology and understanding that that's in our mind and our mind is of nature and that it's a fallacy in its totality to think that you can be separate from it. You can build walls, but the walls that you build are made out of nature. The nature is cellular molecular matter that is self-organizing. It's part of the earth itself. You can build as many cities as you want. You can build as many walls. You can put up as many fences and you can't stop what I call ever-churn, which is the ever-churning, ever-moving, ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of matter itself. Earth is not a static ball. It's not just a sandstorm. It's not just this isolated event from another. The cellular expression of Earth is ever-evolving, ever-moving, ever-churning. We recycle our cells every seven years in their totality. We recycle cells every day. We, every breath is a recycling of this energy. The matter that's in the bag right now that you're bringing into you, that is becoming you, that's being utilized. It's not just a thing that can be isolated from you. An aspect of that is now part of you. Yeah, That is known in the Amazon. And when I got into training the... So first, that's a fallacy to think that we can somehow separate ourselves from nature. That's taking place in our minds. It's delusional. It's a delusional mythology that became popular yeah. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 yeah. years ago, 4,000 years ago. It has not served us well. It has served us really well in terms of the creation of certain technologies, the creation of certain kinds of medicine. We never would have created those things. If we had just had, we are nature and we are one with nature attitude and understanding, but we as a collective will transcend that understanding in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And our own nature will become very important to us again. Now, if we go to the Amazon, they never lost that. They literally never lost it. It is when you live in the Amazon, you realize that the Amazon jungle that you see is born out of the Amazon jungle that's decomposing. So the cycle of life is in front of your eyes all the time, and you are part of that cycle of life, and you understand it. It's natural to be in sync with it when you're there. And so in my early 20s, when I moved in, of course, as a science mind thinker, I got in there, I'm sitting with these elders, and I'm saying to them, how? How did people learn about these plants? There's no laboratories. There's no tests. Like The way we study to create something, they knew, and I asked them how, and they said, oh, a long time ago in history, which means 20, 30, 40, 50,000 years ago, there was a common language. Plants, animals, and humans spoke a common language. And through that common language, the plants and the animals taught us all the knowledge that we have. So now that can be a story, that could be a mythology, or it could just be fact. Yeah. But if I look at it from the, the notion of story or mythology, it means that 
as a being, I have an ability to directly tap into nature and have nature directly teach me. Yeah. So I start to test that theory. Is this true? I'm an outsider in their culture. They're just handing over a cup of ayahuasca and basically saying, survive. So I'm turning to that nature and I'm saying to the nature, nature, take care of me, right? And the nature says back to me, of course we will. You are a steward of this nature. You love us. It says most of the Mm. humans come here and they're just trapped in their minds and they don't realize we're watching them. We're watching them walk through the forest, talking to themselves, and they don't even see us that we're here watching them back. One of my favorite things to do after an ayahuasca ceremony was to get naked and go dive in the river. The river, I would still be in vision. The river was filled with giant anacondas, piranhas, stingrays. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> naked. You want to test nature, naked. And I would literally envision, project to the animals that they were there to protect me. I was not their food. I said, please don't harm me. They said, you're not food. Yeah. You're not food. I mean, the water's dark. It's inky black at night. And I would see them in this color coming off of them, this field of energy that they represented. Not one ever harmed me in 20 years. I was never once harmed by the forest in 20 years. The forest said, we will protect you. We will keep you safe because you love us. You don't take more from us than you need. And so there was that interaction and that communication. They call it the Tukwatana and Yukatana. It means the total force of that nature. And they believe it is conscious. Wow. It's not, it's an inert thing that you can just touch and take from. It is consciousness and you are of that consciousness and you share it and they believe it. And in ayahuasca visions, they experience it. And it's through that experience that the plants come and teach you the medicine. So it's not, here's a whiteboard and here's what the plants do. The facilitator or the knowledgeable one, the medicine man, takes you into vision and says, apprentice, this is the lapuna tree. Lapuna tree, this is the apprentice. Lapuna tree, teach the apprentice. Lapuna medicine. (sighs) Then they take you into ayahuasca and they say, apprentice, this is the ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, you've been here for hundreds of thousands of years. You're millions of years old consciousness. This is this young human that's only been here for a short period of time. Be a steward for them, teach them, guide them, and they make that connection. Yeah. And then you, as the apprentice going through that experience, now have to cultivate that relationship. So you cultivate the relationship to the plants. You beg them and ask them to teach you. They start to come into your visions. Pretty soon, you know their chance. Pretty soon, you can, in your visions, you see these tapestries of sacred geometry. It's this multidimensional field of the most intricate geometry and patterns you can imagine. Yeah. And you start to realize the Lopuna field is different to that of the White Cospi, is different to that of the Ayahuasca, is different to that of San Pedro, it's different to that of psilocybin. You call on these individual plants and all the patterns and colors, context, texture change representing this new plant. Through that interaction, you learn when you use one plant versus another, what is the appropriate plant to be able to use for different kinds of illnesses and treatments, how you use them in a visionary state, in these psychedelic ceremonies, also how you use them outside of the visionary state in poultices and tinctures and teas. So how you actually administer these plants outside of it, you learn and vision how you actually collect the plants. 
what's the safe way to be able to take their barks? What part of the plant has the appropriate chemicals in it that are the appropriate medicines for the person? Does it come from the roots? Does it come from the barks? Does it come from the leaves? Does it come from the branches? Does it come from the flowers? Wow. Which part of the plant you take? The teachers do not tell you that verbally. They show you in vision. And that's how you actually learn. When I got shown that, and that connection with nature, that idea that we could not be separate, that nature was not a dangerous, scary thing, my whole life force turned on. I was 23 years old. It was like I had been given back to what earth really was and how earth became self-organizing life. And my soul turned on, my spirit turned on, my intelligence turned on, and my thirst for these experiences became unquenchable. Wow. Like I just wanted to do this over and over and over again because I had a Western analytical mind and it was now being fed with this experiential learning and it made so much sense. And it made sense that I would be of nature, that we would be of nature, and that through that connection to nature, we would be able to find something deeper than just our ego and deeper than just ourselves, which seemed like such a desert for me at that period of time. And it was like the entire earth of nature was there to be loving, uh, caretaking. It wasn't scary. It wasn't dangerous. It was the exact opposite. It was loving. It was nourishing. It was giving. And it was a sacred relationship. And we were loved. We were coveted by nature. We were treated like the mythological stories from religion of being so important that I didn't experience that in elementary school and high school. I didn't experience that from my peers. I didn't experience that from the Western culture I was in. I was treated like an object. Yeah. And all of a sudden I was treated like a sacred being in and amongst all of these sacred beings and that it was actually appropriate to be able to harvest and use of those sacred beings, but in balance with them mm. and in a loving, giving relationship with them and medicine became alive. It mm. became alive. It was the exact opposite of inert. It was alive and it had conscious context to it. And it was one of the greatest gifts I ever experienced. And so I can corroborate those understandings and I can understand why the tribal people make sure that they foster that connection with the forest, with their children, because that's how they pass on the knowledge from one generation to the next. That's our show, everybody. Thank you, Hamilton. You just dispelled virtually every myth we have in our Western culture in one diatribe. Thank you. <laughs> You're very special, my friend. <laughs> You know, I'm studying anthroposophic medicine, which, of course, came out of Rudolf Steiner's body of work. And Rudolf Steiner's, I think, completely misunderstood because of our objectification of our patients in medicine. And, you know, out of Steiner's work came Waldorf education and biodynamic farming and anthroposophic medicine with the help of Ida Wegman, a German physician at the time. But Steiner actually borrowed quite a bit from Goethe. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who's actually described as a poet from the 18th and 19th centuries, early, early 19th century. And so way about 100 years before Steiner's time. But Goethe's described as a poet, yet if you actually look into what his body of work was, he was, he was a Renaissance man. He was into music composition. He was like Hildegard von Bingen, kind of like the same kind of cloth. He also did quite a bit of investigation on plants. And in Steiner's work, in my studies now, I'm going for my third board certification in anthroposophic medicine for what it's worth. It's very confronting because of the vast majority of time, we're spending as much time with plants as we are with human. And the reason that that's relevant, I think, is because in what I've developed is an understanding that as I'm growing plants in my garage and in my garden, and I'm trying to figure out how these plants, like, what do they need? What do they need from me? How can I best steward them? 
I'm learning that what we've been asking all along is what can this plant do for me as opposed to what can this plant teach me? And that sounds like lip service, but there's actually something very important to that, especially if you're going to be, if you want to have this transformative experience that this plant is here for you. It wants you to engage with it. And I think we could probably say that just about any plant. You don't need to have a 12-hour purge necessarily to experience, although we will talk about that next. I think that what we're lacking is instead of allowing the garden to grow and asking, wow, what is this garden trying to teach me? We say, I want my garden to grow like this. And again, we objectify the plant world. So there is quite a bit, I think, of exploration that us Westerners could probably learn from this. And I think fortunately for you, you had this awakening, so to speak, in your early 20s. How old are you now, Hamilton? 44. 44. So 21 years later, you now have a more, probably a deeper understanding of our connection to nature and the cosmos than most people have developed throughout their entire year, you know, entire lifetime. So for those who are interested in exploring this and maybe trying to understand this consciousness and connecting with it, because I know exactly what you're talking about with the sacred geometry. When I use psilocybin, for example, you know, people say, have you seen the grid? And when you're on one of these medicines, especially if you're in really, really deep, there are these patterns that form, but they're not random. They're not like hallucinatory patterns. You're actually starting no. to be able to connect with Mother Earth herself. And it's actually very heartwarming. It can be scary if you don't go in with the right set and setting. And I think it's because, you know, this is not a drug you go and take at a rave and then you do some coke or whatever else. This is a sacrament. And if you're able to sit with it and go in with the right intentions, these things start to unveil. I mean, they uncover themselves. And once you see it, you get it. It's a feeling. It's something you carry into your everyday life. It can make you a better person. It can also make you a worse person if you haven't integrated sure. it appropriately. So I just wanted to share that. I also wanted to ask, you know, a lot of people are scared about doing these experiences because of how hard it is. And of course, you know, there's really no way around the difficulties of childbirth any more than there is the difficulties of maybe connecting with some of these medicines in the way that you offer them. But the purge comes up quite a bit where people will say, I just can't get over the idea that I'm going to be purging. I don't think people maybe fully appreciate what this purging experience is for some. Can you elaborate on that a little bit for people that have been maybe hesitant or apprehensive? Yeah. In the simple aspect of it, there's onset purge and then there's cleansing purge. And there are different ways to work with a little bit more sensibility and a little bit more precision to limit the onset purge, right? The, typically what happens is that you're ingesting chemicals that as they go into the body, they create a shift in consciousness and shift in energy that's so dramatic so fast that you just get overwhelmed. Yeah. And when you do, naturally as part of that getting overwhelmed, you kind of lose your bearings, you lose your equilibrium, you can be filled with doubt and fear that you're creating. First of all, it's really important to understand that you're having such a new experience so quickly that you start to create some doubts and fears mm. and you can get some nausea and then you purge and then it just comes out. We actually work in a way to try to minimize that. So, you know, in a week long retreat with us, we might do four sessions. And in those sessions, the first one is an introduction, which is literally truly an introduction of the plants into your body and going to what you were saying about a relationship. That's what we're cultivating yeah. and creating. Yeah. It's not a, I ingest this 
I want an experience. It's a hello. <laughs> and please come into the body super gently. Take me to dinner first, Hamilton, you know, yeah, that type of thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to give 24 hours to this process <laughs> of introducing these plants into the body so that this relationship can start to form. Wow. And some people get it and some people don't, but everyone gets it by the end of the week, right? Mm. Because they realize what we have done in terms of creating that introduction and that meeting. Then you start to get into the experience. Now, if you're there for healing, and I think that this is really important, that I've been given so much plants that I'm saturated. And so my body's actually expelling it because I can't have any more, right? So I've reached a saturation point. And then the body naturally purges. You can't overdose on these plants alone. So if you ever hear about that, then someone has added mixtures to the plants and they've somehow adulterated the plant medicine and they've created a poison. So please understand that that's the differentiation. Yeah. If you have pure psilocybin or you have pure ayahuasca or you have pure San Pedro, you actually cannot physically overdose on it. Mm. So you don't have to have a fear of that, but you can get to the point that your body is so saturated that you can't absorb any more and you will throw it up. It will come out of you. You may defecate wow. or have diarrhea and your body will just expel that chemical and you will not have any more of it. And that will be the amount that you have at that time. Wow. So we work with people in a more sophisticated way. The, the traditional, you know, tribal way is here's the saturation dose, have the saturation dose. Anything you don't need will just come out. And then they assure that way that you've gotten a hundred percent absorption, right? We're a little bit more precise. And we try to give you really the amount so you don't need to throw up, mm. you know, in essence, too much medicine. And that comes from experience right? again. We haven't done a Correct. clinical trial to say that based on your height and weight and all this other stuff. No. Yeah. 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 It's conversation and it's knowing the person. And, you know, I may work with four or five different brews so that I can know that some are stronger and some are lighter and some mm. are thicker. And, you know, based on your metabolism, some people metabolize very slowly. Some people metabolize very quickly. We ask these questions. So it's, it's like a little bit of a hybrid from the traditional practices and indigenous practices to a little bit more of, you know, question and answer and getting a feel for you as yeah. a unique individual. Yeah. Now, then there's the purge where you literally have something physical in your body, like a toxin or residue from drugs that are not yeah. good for you anymore. Yeah. Like you are an addict and you don't want to be an addict anymore. And you want to get the residue that's in your hair follicles. You want that out of the body. You want the fat cells that have stored these chemicals in your body. You want it out. Well, that's another kind of purge. And people will attest that they feel like the plant medicine goes through their body. They feel like they get scanned on a cell by cell basis, which is a wild experience to have, to be conscious of that. And then they feel a drawing of these chemicals bonded to the plant medicine and back into the stomach and then a natural release of it. And that kind of purge is part of the practice of medicine. It's part of healing. And it's <laughs> what you do after having any kind of traumatic experience. So, you know, if, if you're part of these traditional societies, not everybody, like the cities don't, people in the cities have kind of forgotten their way. But if you're part of these traditional societies and you have a surgery, like a gallbladder removal or, you know, something where you get put under general anesthesia, after that, like two, three, four weeks later, when you're now good to go, you'll go into an ayahuasca ceremony to actually purge the body of any of the remaining toxins of any of the other medications that you were given. They wow. want you to get fully to the other side of that. You're yeah. not going to carry that residue in you forever. And people will say that they have actually experienced the drawing of these toxins, these heavy metals, these things that are causing illness in their body, literally into their stomach and into their bowels. And then they just come out. Wow. So what I actually do through That's the amazing. practice is I guide somebody really into the most open 
into the most centered, into the most grounded state of consciousness possible going through this process so that all we're doing is releasing toxins and releasing things that need to come out of the body. And then it's not a foreign concept. It's not like, oh, oh, why would I throw up? It's just give me the bucket and it comes out immediately. And then someone feels great afterwards. And so I think we can dispel some of the sort of rumors and, you know, kind of weirdness we get around this idea of like understanding, wow, this is actually a traditional healing mechanism. This is a way to get something physical out of the body. And I tell people this all the time. If you don't have something physical, there's no need to purge physically. Yeah. You'll release sweat. You'll release energy sweating. You'll release energy breathing. You'll get hot or cold. You know, we'll have blankets there for you if you need them, et cetera. But that, those shifts that you go through is purging. It's just not that acute physical vomit or diarrhea that people tell a big story about. Yeah. But for yeah. me, that purge needs to be purposeful. Otherwise, I don't see a reason for it, right? There's no reason to go into extreme nausea. On the contrary, we want to transcend that. There's no reason to cause physical discomfort. We want to transcend that. So, you know, as a recap, we take you in, we introduce the plants over the first couple of days. We build the relationship with them that we were talking about where it's a give and take with nature itself. There's a petition to the plants for healing and transformation or the ascension and awakening of consciousness and learning. Then there is the removal of anything that's necessary to remove. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. And then there really is the transcendent states of consciousness after the purging, where all of that knowledge is transferred to you, the learning takes place, and really an astounding experience of opening and awakening is possible. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to need to have, you know, it's the one medicine I actually haven't had is ayahuasca, interestingly. So I speak like I kind of know, but it's just because everybody around me has, and I hadn't felt called to do it until very recently. And I actually think that's an important part of the process is, you know, you don't cancel a business trip and make your way for a quick stopover to do some ayahuasca. I mean, maybe some people do. That's not the way that I approach these types of experiences. The other thing I'll add is that going into any altered state of consciousness. It doesn't even need to be, you know, facilitated through plant medicines, but the role of intention setting going in, Mm. that's a part of the set and setting. That's the mindset part. Although I'm not so sure we should really call it mindset because it's actually not my mind that's necessarily creating the intention alone. It's actually more of, it's a little bit more ethereal than that. When I recently had an experience while on the sacred hunt that I mentioned before, where we took some medicine and my intention going in for whatever reason was, I, you know, what is the purpose of the heart? And it came in the form of a question, but that doesn't need to. But for whatever reason, for me, that's what came up. And in the ceremony, what came to me were not, you know, this model of the heart. And it was like, well, actually, it's done like this. It wasn't like that. It was three words came out that I sort of gathered in the experience and came out with were presence, reverence, and patience, Hmm. which even with the way that we describe it in the Western model, really the way you show up in the world, your heart, when you open your heart, it allows you to have reverence, patience, and presence in the world. So I give that as a little example of what I mean by intention setting. Can you describe, you know, just to conclude our conversation, describe what does the role of intention setting coming into ceremony with you? What role does that play? Yeah, intention is one of the most important parts. And so I'm actually really glad that you bring it up. 
this is how the sacred relationship gets created. And intention is not just your reasons for being there. Mm -hmm. So most people start with their reasons for being there and they can make a list of it. And then I even tell them, listen, your intention really does come from your heart. And we think of the heart as your, your connection to infinite unconditional love and the part of you in terms of your consciousness that is already connected to everything. It's the mind that is figuring things out. The heart already knows. It's this yeah, place of deep yeah, knowing. Of and so we say inside your heart that your intentions are already there. Mm. And so I tell people, like, you can put words to it and you can become more sophisticated in how you express the nature of those words, which is kind of a brain training and a mind training process. But you want to give your heart to that plant medicine experience. You're giving your heart to yourself. Mm. You're opening that infinite unconditional love for your own well-being. And you're giving that love to yourself from the very beginning of the process. Your intentions are in there and they represent a depth of knowledge that is so core to your being, we could think of it as like soul. It's mm. like why your soul is alive. Mm -hmm. It's connected directly to your purpose. It's connected to your existence itself. It knows more about you than we know intellectually in terms of like our psychology about ourselves. Yeah. It's where our true motivations are. And it's what's really driving us to that ceremony or to that plant medicine experience. And it's the part of us that is always on our side. Mm. So whereas the mind sometimes has gotten to this place where we self-sabotage or we're, you know, not in a place where we're really aligned with ourselves, the heart is always there for our best interest. And it's centered in that understanding. It's communicating through the cells all the time, this energy that is about your health and well-being. And the mind may tell us something different. And so heart is where that intention is. We go in, I guide people to just let the plant medicine experience go right through the heart. The heart is also our safe place in that experience. Yeah. So if the mind starts to have difficulty, we just go into the heart. And then we really learn that the heart isn't just a pumping blood. That's a very mechanical way of understanding it, but it is actually core to our consciousness and something to be discovered and something to be ultimately investigated and learned from. It's why there's that innate bond with child. It's why there's the ability to you know, love something truly forever. It's why we have such a strong bond with life itself, why we're connected to that life force energy that flows through us. Our intentions are in there and we give ourselves to the experience through it. Yeah, you know, the term the solar plexus comes to mind. You know, it sits right adjacent to the heart and it's where that gut feeling comes from. You know, it, you're not going to intellectualize your way through life or birth or death. There's some deep knowing there. And I think that these medicines help us get back in touch with that, which is why I think actually that reason alone is why I think that these experiences are so transformative. It's a remembering that you're okay. You are mm. just fine. You've over-intellectualized your life up until this point, and maybe you'll continue. But for that brief moment, you get to see through the clouds, so to speak, and you have this deep remembering that like, I am okay. You know, mm. it's not just a little thing you get at Marshall's where it's like, I'm enough, I'm enough. You actually feel it. For sure. It's not a matter of convincing anybody. You now feel it and you know it and you walk away in many ways, a different person. So Hamilton, I appreciate you so much for sharing and being so open. I will be joining you down there at some point. When the invitation comes, I will be there with you. For those out there who are interested in this, they want to find you, tell them everything they need to know, and we'll send a lot of people your way. Oh, fantastic. So you can find us at bluemorphotours.com. That's our main website. And you can find out all about our work with sacred plants there. So bluemorphotours.com. And you can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Hamilton Souther Official and on YouTube at Blue Morpho. Beautiful.
Hamilton, thank you. Thank you for doing what you're doing in the world. Thank you for coming in with such humility and sort of like through the eyes of a child is what I say. You know, there's so much here to be unpacked. And I think we kind of just barely skimmed the surface, but I really appreciate your time and we'll be in touch. Oh, Nathan, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And it's just a real honor. So thank you guys so much. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't checked out my website, go to belovedholistics.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice, but you certainly can get some help, whether you're a person looking for a birth worker or a holistic gynecologist, or if you're a midwife or other type of birth worker or healthcare professional that wants to have me in your corner, you can find all of that there. You can also find information about my new PRP fertility program. That's all available at belovedholistics.com. If anything in this show touched you in some way, if you went back and re-listened to something, share this episode. Give the gift of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast to the people in your life, to your clients, to your family, your friends, your colleagues. Let's get these messages out there. This conversation, like every conversation, I only do it because I think it's important for the community. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give me a five-star review. Believe it or not, it really matters. And then lastly, support our sponsors. The sponsors make it possible to put out this high-quality content. And as I'm increasing my audio and my video and my different platforms and rebranding and rebuilding, that costs money. My sponsors enable that to happen. I also have an online shop with not only the sponsors discount codes listed, but a wide variety of other products that are going to make you and your family as healthy and vital as possible. Again, I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.